Well, some of you who have been here over the last weeks and months and been in our study of the book of Luke, you might be wondering, how in the world did we get from Luke to 2 Kings? And so let me explain how that happened. Last week on Monday, I came into the office early, which I try to do, to try to jumpstart the study for this week and try to start learning and studying the passage from, from Luke. And But before I did, sat down just like many of you and began to have my own quiet time and uh, begin to uh, do my own Bible reading. And I was reading in the book of 2 Kings. And uh, as I was reading it, I came upon this passage, a pa- passage about uh, poisoned stew. And uh, to be honest with you, wasn't real familiar with it uh, right off the bat. I was familiar with, with, with kind of the bookend stories that, that came before and that after. The one before is about Elisha and the Shunammite woman uh, who, he, whose child died. And then uh, Elisha uh, makes him come back to life, brings him back to life. I knew that story. I was very familiar with the story of Naaman, which follows this particular story. Naaman and the, in, in the leprosy that he had and how he was healed by, by faith, dipping himself into the Jordan River seven times and coming up clean and afresh once again and healed. So I knew those two, but this one, not so much. Um, um, in fact, I don't think I had ever studied it. I know that I had never preached it. I don't think I ever heard another pastor really preach on it, even though I'm sure there are, are droves of other pastors who have dealt with this text and done it well. Um, but as I begin to just kind of think on it and kind of work on it, uh, two hours went by and I still basically had nothing. And uh, at that point, I don't know if it was just me being ticked off or whatever it was or frustrated, but I was like, this is what we're preaching. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to study this, figure this out, and then I'm going to preach it on Sunday. And then about 30, Thursday afternoon, I realized that that was probably a huge mistake, just to be honest with you. Probably a huge mistake. Probably still don't know what it means, but I'm going to do my best. This is the difficulty about a passage like this. When you look to other uh, pastors and people who have preached on it or other, uh, other commentaries, many times they end up uh, interpreting this allegorically. Now, that just basically means um, that they are not looking at really what's happening in the text. They're always believing that what's happening in the text is pointing to a a greater truth, something uh, like a secondary truth, which is ultimately primary, okay? So uh, then then they begin to, everything in the story becomes a symbol. The the, the pot is a symbol, and, and the poison is a symbol, and this is what it represents. The problem is when you do that, it's just opened up to everybody's interpretation. Everybody's going, well, this is what the pot means. And everyone's like, oh, that's so good. And then somebody says, no, the pot is this, and the poison is this, and the gourd means this. Everybody disagrees. So the key is, is we want to know what is clearly in the text. What is it? How can we read it in such a way that when we're reading, somebody from on the other side of the world, in India or somewhere else, can read it and sit there and go, you're right, that's right in the text. Sometimes when a pastor is preaching and somebody goes, wow, I've never seen that. How did you get that out of that text? And it's because when you weren't looking, they put it in the text. That's why. And so what we want to do is we just want to know what is there. And so that's what I've tried to do. And I'm glad that I did because at least for me, it was a word that I desperately needed to hear this last week. And so as all scriptures are pointing to God, we know that, but sometimes uh, they also point to us as well, at least God's people. And so this morning, I want to show you three things in this particular passage concerning God's people that I believe to be true based on what we see here in the text of scripture. Number one, God's people are not above suffering. God's people are not above suffering. Look, if you will, beginning in verse 38, the Bible says, and Elisha came again to Gilgal when there was a famine in the land. 
And as the sons of the prophets were sitting before him, he said to his servant, set on a large pot and boil stew for the sons of the prophets. So here we see Elisha. We know that Elisha is, is, come, came after, if you will, uh, Elijah. We know that he's a prophet in the northern kingdom of Israel. He lived in a town called Shunem. And right now we see that he made his way from Shunem down to the city of Gilgal. And in Gilgal, there was actually a school for promising prophets, people that wanted to be a prophet or there was a calling in their life to be a prophet, to proclaim God's truth. And in, the professor is Elisha. And so here in verse 38, we actually see kind of a scene where he's sitting down with them in school. They're sitting around him, and no doubt he's teaching them the truths of God's word. But then it tells us that in the midst of all this, in the midst of these men seeking God, seeking his word, wanting to do the will of God, there's a famine. Now that's significant. That's significant because usually when you read about a famine in the Old Testament, the majority of the time it is speaking and referring to the judgment of God on his people because of their sins against him. And that what seems to be what's happening here. When you look at passages like Leviticus chapter 26 or Deuteronomy chapter 28, there are lists, large lists of really what we see as God's covenant promises to his people concerning blessings and curses. So in essence, God says this to him. He says, if you obey me, I promise to bless you. And here's the whole list of blessings that you will receive. But if you disobey me, you will be cursed. And then he gives them this whole list of curses that they will have to endure because of their disobedience towards God. And so in the list of those curses is famine. So again, what we believe is happening is, is that God is indeed bringing judgment against this, this nation and this northern kingdom of Israel at this time. What tells us that even more is because of what was happening in the northern kingdom of Israel. And, and what was happening is the people had turned away from God and they were now worshiping the false pagan god Baal. Now, Baal was basically the proclaimed god of thunderstorms and fertility. So basically, he was the one who brought the rains. That's what they believed. They brought the rains, and because he brought the rains, he also brought up the crops, brought forward the harvest, and therefore was ultimately responsible for putting food on the plates of God's people. So God's people had gone away from God and began to worship this false God, and they begin to praise him for the rains that come. Well, there's something about our God, and that is he is a jealous God. And he doesn't like inanimate, made-up gods taking his and stealing his glory. He says that he will share his glory with no one, including Baal. And so what he decides to do is he sends these prophets in judgment against the nations. And they declare, and by an act, and by miraculous sign, they cease the water and the rains from raining down. It doesn't rain, which means the crops die, which means now there's nothing to eat. So they find themselves in a full-blown famine. So this is what's happening. And he does this for the purpose, not to necessarily punish the people, but to draw them back to himself, to draw them back to worship him and identify that he is the one and true God, the only one and true God. Well, in the midst of this great famine and the judgment of God falling out, you see a remnant of God's people, these believers who are faithful to God. They're worshiping him. They're trying to seek his word. They're trying to do his word. They're trying to be a light in a lost and dying world. And in the midst of all of this, though, they still suffer. They're not exempt from it. They still are suffering the same exact harsh uh, judgments that God has sent over the land. So what it's telling us is, and here's what people will do. 
in, in some of the commentaries that I had, here are the applications. The application is, number one, you better pray for your nation. That's the number one, they'll say. You got to pray for your nation. And you know what? I agree. It seems like we're kind of having a little bit of a divide amongst God's people. Here it is. It's people who really love God and really love their country, and they're having a little bit of hard time distinguishing between the two, God and country. Would you agree? Two of you. So, all right, the rest of you are that then. And so, uh, well, just kidding. And then there's another side, and here's the other side that you have with people. People are so afraid of, of appearing as though they, they, they love the country as much as God. They're just like, you know, I, I have no allegiance to the country at all, as though that's a wrong thing to be able to do. I'm just going to let you know your pastor believes, even biblically, that it's okay to love both God and your country. You're allowed to do it, okay? Oh, all right. We had one person applaud. Fair. Uh, this is a great sermon. All right, this is fantastic. Going exactly the way I hoped. Um, the way I envisioned it, there was no applause, just this. All right, and so it's going better than I thought. And so, so the idea, it's okay to be able to do both. And so what they're saying is pray for your country. And you know what? That's true. If you go to anywhere in the world, and, and our missionaries who are here, they'll tell you, you go anywhere in the world, when people get saved, their heart is first and foremost for the people of their nation. They love them. Our heart should be for the people of our nation. Would you agree? We should love them. And so obviously we should pray for the nation. We don't want people that we love to fall under the judgment of God. Hey, I don't want to get wrapped up underneath the judgment of God. Is that okay as well? You're like, I don't know if that's okay. We should suffer for God. That's great, but I'm not asking for it, right? And so it's okay as well. But here's the point. I don't think that's what he's calling us to do. I think all that is true, but I don't think that he's calling us to do. Others would say, well, this is really telling us about being the salt and light to a lost world, to preserve the world so that it doesn't end up becoming judged by God. Is that a true biblical truth? Yes, but is that what's going on here? I don't think so. I think what's going on here is simply this, is the, is the point that I've already made, is that when a country goes rogue, when a country begins to rebel against God, go away from God, ignore God, begin to worship false gods, ultimately God's patience runs out and his judgment falls on that nation. And here's the idea, the believers that are within that nation, the remnant of true believers are not exempt from experiencing the same sufferings. They're not. That's a hard word. Because oftentimes of us, we're, 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 we, uh, we, we always think, well, somehow we're going to get raptured out of this. We're not going to. The Bible is teaches overall around the world when, 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 when nations are going rogue, when they are fleeing from God, everything else, those believers are not exempt from the difficulties that ultimately come our way. So here's the idea. I don't think that this point is to cause you to do something. I think this point is to help you to know something. And the reason that you need to know that as a believer in Jesus Christ, that you are not exempt from temporal sufferings, it's good for you. And you need to know it right up front. So if you are somebody who is not a believer in Christ, you just, you lost a bet and you're here this morning and, and, and you sit back and you're like, okay, I'm hearing about this gospel. Somebody keeps teaching me about this gospel, this good news of Jesus Christ. And I'm up here telling you, hey, come to Jesus. You're not exempt from suffering. A lot of you are going to go, I don't know if I'm interested in this. Because the truth is I'm coming because I'm suffering, because I have relationship problems, because I have finance problems, because my little girl is sick, and that's why I'm here. I need Jesus to fix that. And I'm here to say, God may very well lovingly, graciously help you in those things, but there's no promise that he will. And so the reason that this is so important for us to be able to understand is because of unmet expectations. We preached on this just a couple of weeks ago. When somebody comes up and they go to the aisle, and this is why you see so many droves of people coming to an aisle oftentimes when people are like, hey, uh, we, we, we have a time of response. Hey, are you hurting? Yes, you need Jesus, come down. 
Hey, uh, uh, is your body hurting? Yes, you come down. Look, if we get through all the hurting, everybody's going to come forward on that day, right? But Jesus isn't an Alka-Seltzer, all right? It's not the way that it works. And so the idea is what we call is we go, hey, listen, we just want to let you know you have a greater problem than all of the sufferings that you will have in this world, and that is an eternal suffering, the judgment of Jesus Christ. And if you want him, you want him for that and for that alone. God may be gracious. And why is it so important for us to know? Because there are too many people. The Bible says that in the end times when there is a huge judgment or a judgment on the world. And what we find is that, that, that uh, when, when, when um, there's a great persecution that is going to rise up really around the world towards believers in Jesus Christ, that there's gonna be a great falling away. Have you ever thought about why would there be a great falling away? I'll tell you why. Because they signed up for Jesus to do something and be something and he failed in it. And therefore, what's the use of Jesus anymore? There's an old time, uh, uh, you've probably heard of this if you've ever done uh, the way of the master, gone through that. And there's an example that he gives about being on an airplane. And he says that, say you're on an airplane and the flight attendant comes up to you and offers you a parachute and says, hello, sir, or hello, ma'am. It's wonderful to be able to have you here today. And as you're sitting here in first class, I've got a parachute for you to put on. It's going to make your flight more enjoyable. And so you'll sit back and what do you do? You're like, okay, I don't know how that's going to happen. I mean, I'm in first class. How can it be more enjoyable? But I'll try it. So you put it on. And all of a sudden, your back starts hurting and you start getting a cramp in your back and your neck, and you just don't know what to do. And the people next to you start snickering and laughing at you, and you can tell the kid's doodling you, and you look like an idiot. And so all this is going on. And then the flight attendant comes down the aisle. She bumps into you. When she does, because of your, your parachute on your back, she actually dumps hot water or hot, hot coffee onto your lap. At this point, what do you do? You get rid of the parachute because it didn't do what it promised to do. Uh, now people are laughing at you. You're now in pain. Now you have coffee falling on your lap, all because of this stupid parachute. So you take it off because it did not do what it promised to do. So you abandon it. But if somebody comes down on the plane and says, listen, I have insight information. Not everybody believes this, but I know for a fact that somewhere in the flight that this flight is going to go down and you are going to have to jump then it doesn't matter if people make fun of you. It doesn't ultimately matter if your back hurts. It doesn't ultimately matter if scalding coffee is poured on your lap. You don't take it off because you know that the only reason you put it on was not for a better flight, but for the jump to come. And so what he's telling us from the very beginning, and it's something that we need to hear as American believers in Jesus Christ, if judgment comes, if difficulties come, here's the idea. We do escape certain difficulties when you come to faith in Jesus Christ. You know what those are? Those are stupid difficulties. Those are the types of stuff that we do that is apart from the will of God. We disobey God, and then we, we bear the brunt of those mistakes. When you become more like Christ, hopefully we have less suffering like that because of our own mistakes. But you and I continue to experience suffering of the sins of other people and even in the culture in which we live. In fact, we're not promised that we will not suffer. We're promised that we will suffer great things for his name. And so here's the idea is it teaches us, first of all, that God's people are not above suffering. The second thing that it teaches us, I believe, is that God's people are not above object lessons. They're not above object lessons. Look at verse 39. One of them, meaning one of the prophets, went out into the fields to gather herbs and found a wild vine and gathered from it his lap full of wild gourds and came and cut them up into the pot of stew, not knowing what they were. So one of the prophets takes it upon himself. Nobody else can find anything to eat. He takes it upon himself that he's going to find something secure, some kind of food to be able to put in this pot and to be able to make it. There was nothing in the cupboard, so he had to get creative. 
my wife is notorious for this. Maybe your wife or mother is as well, uh, that there are often times where I'll go to the pantry and wives, you've probably seen this a million times. You just open up the pantry and you just stare and just look and looking around and finally you shut it and I take a step to the left, open up the refrigerator and nothing there, refrigerator, nothing there. I go out into the, into the garage, open it up, nothing there, nothing there. I, and then I'm such a loving husband. I say, honey, there's nothing to eat. There's nothing to eat in the whole house. Are you going to go grocery shopping? Should I just go out to eat what it is? You know, what should we do? And she goes, just get out of the kitchen. Just get out of the kitchen. I'll, I'll find something. And I'm thinking in my mind, and I would never say this to my wife because I, I don't like judgment. And so what I would end up saying is I would just basically say, hey, look, unless you can make something out of ketchup, mustard, and Worcestershire sauce, we are in big trouble, right? So 10 minutes later, all of a sudden, you start smell, smelling something cooking, and you're like, wow, that smells delicious. And, uh, and she brings something, and she puts it down. Now, to be honest with you, what she puts in front of me is, doesn't always have a name, but it is, it is very creative, and it is very good. And we sit there leaving, scratching our head, going, how did she do this? Well, the same creativity that my wife has, this guy has. People are like, there's nothing to eat. He goes, I'll show you. Doesn't have a pantry. He goes out to a farm, or excuse me, goes out to a field. Now, the word field here in the Hebrew does not mean a cultivated farm. It means a or field. It means a wild field. So he's just looking stuff to pick. So he goes to the herbs. He grabs some herbs. He finds a vine. Hey, there are these cucumber-looking objects on it. Hey, I don't know what that is, he says, but we'll eat it. And by the way, there are rules for eating. You guys do know this, right? There are rules for eating. One of mine is simply, if I don't know what it is, I'm not eating it. So if, if you come to me with a fork and go, here, try this. What is it? I don't know. I'm not eating it, all right? That's just, that's just first world rules. But when, you know as well as I do, when you become really, really hungry, you begin to lower those standards, yes? You begin to lower the standards. And you're like, hey, all, all, all we got is broccoli. I hate broccoli. I'm not eating broccoli. You get really, really hungry. You're like, we got cheese. I'll just dunk it in cheese, bro. I'll eat it, anything with cheese on it. So you begin to kind of change that. Well, he goes out and he gets these and he chops them up and he puts them into the stew. We pick up in verse 40 and they poured out some for the men to eat. But while they were eating of the stew, they cried out, oh man of God, there is death in the pot. Now don't, do not under any circumstances, men, do this to your wife. If you don't like what she's eating, just shut up and go through the drive-thru somewhere else. Don't go, men of God, there's death in the pot. Don't do that. And so there's death in the pot. This means either one, it's a terribly tasting thing, which is probably true, but more likely it's making them sick. And most scholars believe that this is what you call the Citrullus colocynthus, uh, which is better known during the time, which would have been known as the bitter gourd. And this bitter gourd had pur uh, purgative qualities. Some have said, I don't know. I didn't know what the word was, so I looked it up. And it basically is more like purgative qualities. In other words, uh, this is like making a big stew of laxatives. That's basically what it is. Look, I, I don't write it. I just explain it. So don't judge me. And so the idea there is that they're eating this, and they can't hold anything in. All right, let's just leave it at that. And so, and, and so what's happening is they're very, very sick, very, very bad cramping. Very, all of these things are going on in, in the midst of this. And it can, it can really harm you, make you feel very sick, but it could also kill you because you could become uh, past the point of dehydration and you can die from that dehydration. And so this was serious stuff. And so they're sick, they don't like it. And so then something happens here though. Elisha steps in and he said, 
He said, then bring flour, and he threw it into the pot, and he said, pour some out for the men that they may eat, and there was no harm in the pot. So here's the question that I was struggle with for the majority of the week, why flour? Is there something really chemically about it that basically breaks down and neutralizes the poisons from that gourd? Not, not that I could find, not that I know of. So then why flour? Well, I think it's important for us to be able to understand that, that oftentimes God accompanies his miracles with physical signs so that you know a miracle is taking place. Understand that. But at the same time, he wants to make sure you know that it's not the thing that's causing the miracle. So he often puts something together that you know that it couldn't possibly be what's curing the individual. It has to be God who is behind it. And so we see this throughout the word of God. For example, I think of the Israelites as they're wandering through the wilderness and, and all of a sudden they come upon snakes and these vipers are, are biting them and killing them and they form this, this, this uh, uh, snake, right? This bronze snake and whoever looks on it, right, then is healed from, from their sickness or being bit by a snake. Now, did God, ha- did God have to heal them through that? No, not at all. You get to the New Testament, you see Jesus do the same thing. You see Jesus, when he heals a man who was blind from birth, he basically takes some spittle and some mud, and he makes some, some, some mud pies, and he takes it and he lays it on the man's eyes, and when he begins to wash away, what happens? He, he begins to gain his sight at that particular point. Question, was it Jesus or the mud pies that healed the man? It was Jesus. So why in the world would there oftentimes be a connection between this miracle and these visible signs? Dale Ralph Davis has a good thing. He asks the same question. He says, why, he goes, why does God insist on using visible signs even for sophisticated believers in the advanced postmodern era? In other words, we think that we kind of know it all. We have the Bible. We've got all these books. We've got tons of information. We're very smart as believers. Why in the world would we need these visible signs in this way to remember God's ultimate goodness? Why, why, why would we need? Why would we need and be in need of things like that? It's it's kind of a little bit. I remember being younger, um, and I remember reading. And remember when you're younger, you have all the picture books. You remember that well, with all the pictures and you'd read it and you'd look at it and our, our youngest kids and, and maybe our older kids as well is when I'm reading and, I'm re- and I forget to show the picture, what is the first thing they say? What's the picture? Show us the picture. What does it do? It helps them to understand what it is that they're hearing. It's a visual kind of, they're coming together. What you see and what you hear are coming together so that it drives down in and brings more understanding. Well, I remember there was a point I had older brothers and a sister who were were older than me. And so their books didn't have pictures in them. And I remembered I could not wait to get to the point to where my books didn't have any more pictures of it because I felt like I was older, right? Then when you finally get to that point, then you want pictures again. But that's just how it worked. And so so we sat back and, and, and so his idea is, are we just... Why in the world would God think we would need any kind of visual sign accompanied with God's move and work and miracles in our life and his provision in our life? Why would we ever need something like that? Here's his take. In part, I surmise, to give us pegs on which to hang the memory of his works. Visible signs are God's defense against spiritual amnesia. We are terrible about remembering the goodness of God. Many of us in here would probably say throughout our Christian life, there have been hundreds of things that we've been concerned about and we have brought before God and God has answered and met every single need. But the moment that one more thing or problem comes down the thing, we act as though God has never done anything. That God has never acted on our behalf and never been faithful to us. We lose it as though we have forgotten. 
And so God trying to help us not to be able to forget, he actually often takes the work and he combines it so that we would have a continual memory of God's goodness and his saving power in our life. Can you imagine with this, this is my, how it worked with this flower, say after this particular event, maybe a mom is sitting there in a, in a culture that really relies on bread being a staple of what they lived and what they lived on and survived on. And there is their child and they're young and finally they have the wheat and they're sifting the wheat and they take the, or they, they take the flower and they go, did, did I ever tell you the time that God saved his people through the prophet Elisha with just a flick of flour in the pot? Well, let me tell you, or maybe, maybe the kids are down during the time of Jesus and they're just playing with mud pies and the father sits down with them and he picks them up and he goes, have I ever told you the time when Jesus really gave sight to the blind, which ultimately shows that he gives eternal life to people who are dead and blind to their sin. He gives them sight to be able to see their condition. And, and so these are things, you know, I, I feel as though if we all looked back, we would see different things that remind us of the goodness of God. Uh, there was a time when I was in college and it sounds weird, you know, you, sometimes we talk about poor college students and sometimes they really are poor. Now, the majority of the people that I went with, they had tons of money, at least their parents had tons of money. Uh, ours did not, went to a school that I probably shouldn't have gone to, too expensive. And so I was going, but I just didn't have two nickels to rub together, just to be honest with you. Uh, ramen noodles, 10 for a dollar was a gold mine. That really helped me out and got me through. I gained 50 pounds, but it was still really helpful. And I remember one day I'd gone to a, a service on Sunday morning and we were in worship and I just felt, my dad had always taught me to make sure that I give and be faithful in giving. But I realized I only had a few bucks in my pocket and a little bit of change and, and the offering plate came around. And I was like, you know what? I'm not to give just out of my abundance. I'm to give out of my poverty as well. So I took whatever I had out of my pocket, put it in the, uh, the offering plate as it went around. The offering plate is something that used to pass around before COVID-19, all right? Just wanna make sure we understand, just in case you don't get it. And so, so what happens is, is that is it goes around, and I remember leaving, I remember going, man, I have no idea what I'm gonna eat. I remember there being some pickles uh, in my refrigerator when I left, but there were two, and I knew that my, the, my crazy roommates were gonna eat them before I got home. And so I literally was just kind of walking through just where the mailboxes were. And I decided to stop by the mailbox on campus before I went to, uh, the, the, to the room. I opened it up and in was this pl blank envelope and uh, it didn't have any writing on it. And I opened it up and there were two $20 bills in it. And there's a part of me that kind of sat there and was going, is this somebody else's mailbox? No, I'm the one that has the code. It's my mailbox. Okay, this is great. And I'm telling you, and it may not seem like a big deal to you, but every time I see a mailbox today, like that. One of those little small little ones that you see like in apartment complexes or you see at the thing. Every time I see one of them, I instantly am reminded of the goodness of God and his provision for me in a time of need. And if you think that you're somehow above that, I will remind you of baptism in the Lord's Supper. God has given us baptism so that every time somebody goes and walks an aisle and gives their life to Jesus Christ and wants to follow in believers' baptism, in front of all of the believers, they are to be baptized in front of him. Why? Because they are declaring the goodness of God and his power to save as they align to his death, burial, and resurrection. And then when we take of the Lord's Supper and we take of the bread and of the cup, and we were reminded of his broken body and his shed blood for us, we do it time and time again. Why? Because we're so forgetful of the goodness and the saving power and the saving work of God. And so here I think once again that you and I, no matter how old you get, you and I are not above using those object lessons to love God more and more and more.
There's a third thing, and I'll close with this. There's a third thing that we see in the text, and that's God's people are not beyond God's grace. Don't you feel bad for the poor guy that went out and like took up all the gourds? I feel bad for the guy. And the reason is, is because I can identify him. Oftentimes, identify with him. I feel oftentimes that I'm trying to do the right thing and be helpful to other people, but it doesn't always work out that way. Here's a man who desperately wanted to help the people around him, and he sent them to the emergency room, right? And, and yet, at the same time, he had the greatest of intentions. He met well. He was utterly sincere. And yet, he really messed up and brought pain to those who are around us or around, or around them. There are times over that I look, and this message is not about me, okay? So I just want to make sure that you're identifying, trying to maybe you can, uh, maybe you can align yourself or, uh, with this. Is Throughout the course of ministry, and it's been 20-some-odd years now, I look back oftentimes, and, and I got to tell you, and you know this because you've been used in this way, where you were just able to maybe encourage somebody in the faith in some way from something you said or something you did or some kind of ministry that you had. And you know there is no greater, like, feeling than that, is there? When somebody is just growing in Christ because somehow God by his, by his grace and his mercy chose to use you to impact another person's life. Are y'all with me on that? And you sit back and you're like, God, this is so good because I know that I'm undeserving. I know it's not me. I know it's gotta be all you. It's kind of like looking at the flower. It can't be you, the flower. It's gotta be something else. And that's the way that God, and I love that. But there are times in my ministry in other places and in here where I intended absolutely the, with the best intentions to do the right thing and to do what was loving and caring and nurturing. And there were times that I just blew it. I could give you a long list and we don't have enough time for that list and it wouldn't do any of us very good to be able to hear about it. Let me just give you one illustration. When I first came to Mercy Hill, it was celebration at the time. There was a young couple and I was just trying to get to know folks and they were kind of new to the church. I really do not believe that they knew Christ, that they understood the gospel, but they were at least open to it. Their friends had invited them to come to church. And, uh, and I had befriended them and, and, and they actually had a loss in the family. One of their fathers died, I couldn't remember exactly which one. And uh, they asked me to come and do the funeral for them. You know, that's an important time in the life of people in the church. I gotta tell you, when you're there at people's births and the birth of the children's or weddings or funerals, those are times that really people in the congregation, they really, really remember uh, those times. It means a lot to them. And so I wanted to be able to help them. So I went to them and they basically said, hey, look, you need to understand that our father uh, was, uh, was a, a Freemason. And there's gonna be a lot of Freemason activities and different kinds of liturgies and things like that that are going down, ceremonies that are being done at the funeral. And we just, you know, we just wanna let you know that. Well, and uh, look, uh, please don't email me about this. Uh, we, can, we can deal with it another time. But uh, I don't believe that all the Freemasons and everything that people are in it uh, are, are bad people or even unbelievers. But when you get down to the mere doctrines of uh, the Freemasons, they are in many times antithetical to the scriptures and the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I'll hear about that, but it's all right. Let me just throw it out there anyway for you. And so, so what happens is I just didn't feel like I could be a part of this funeral. Just didn't feel like I could do it. So I called him back and I said, look, I, in, in good conscience, I, I can't go in to be able to help you in that point. They were very gracious. And they said, we completely understand it's no problem. And they never came back, just never came back. And look, there's always gonna be places and in, in, in lines where you have to draw and just certain things that you cannot do because the Bible is so unique about it. Other times you may not know clearly and you're trying to figure things out and you're trying to do the very best that you are, you can, and you end up causing hurt for someone. 
And I'm telling you, all these years later, 16 years later, I, I still remember that time and I can't shake it. And I can't get away from it. And for some of you, you know exactly what I'm talking about because you might deal with the same thing in your relationships and even with relationships with your children. Some of you who are younger are scared to death that you are going to make a mistake that derails your kids. And I'm just gonna let you know, you are going to make many mistakes that have the potential of derailing your kids. Some of us look back at our kids and they're not walking with the Lord and they're not doing whatever. And we blame ourselves so much because we know we did things that were probably not the best in leading them. We, we know that it wasn't all together. We knew that we weren't perfect. And this is a reminder that you are not beyond the grace of God. This is saying that you cannot sin in, in, in your intentions, even though they may be wrong and made from the right thing, are, do not determine who is in or who is not in the kingdom of God and do not trump the sovereign will of God, period. And that's what's happening here. The guy means well, he's sending people to the hospital. Some have the potential of death because of, what it, because of his service. What ultimately happens? God says, I'm sovereignly in control of this. So what a gracious thing to remember. For me as a pastor all the time, is sitting there going, did I make the right decision? And sometimes it comes back and he goes, I don't even know if I made the right decision, but God, be sovereign and gracious over all to me and to those that I possibly hurt, never intending to be able to hurt them at all. I don't wanna be allegorical with the text at all, but I will say that all scripture points to who? Jesus Christ. All of the word of God is just a meta narrative, a great story of, of that leans to the person of Christ and his fulfillment of what he did to miraculously save us from death. We see that here. That's a part of that story. And oftentimes what we do is we understand one of, one of the things that this text teaches us is as well-mannered as you are, you cannot save yourself from sin and death. You may be here this morning and you may think to yourself, hey, I'm a good person and I'm gonna do right. And if I can be just a good enough dad and a good enough this and a good enough that, I'll be able to somehow save myself. And all you're doing really is condemning yourself all the more. Because every work that you do to try to succeed and try to be accepted by God to earn salvation, it's just more sin that falls short of the glory of God, it falls short of the glory of, God, uh, uh, of his standard. And then we find ourselves even more guilty because there's even more sin as we go. And so what we find here is that we do not have a cure, you and I, within ourselves for sin and death. Only God has the power of that. And he did it not by adding flour, but by adding the bread of life, Jesus Christ, into the world. And did you notice something about that? When Jesus Christ came into the world, he did not become toxic like the world but that the world through him might become righteous because he himself is righteous. And so the Bible teaches us is again, is we could never save ourselves, but God can by sending his son, Jesus Christ into the world to do what we could not do for ourselves. So three things this morning, maybe you're here this morning and maybe you're suffering and maybe you feel like you have been duped from God because most of your suffering has been caused by somebody else. I wanna let you know that God has not promised to spare you from that, but God has promised to be in that with you. An old preacher used to say, God did not come to get you out of trouble, but to get into trouble with you. That's what we see in this text. He doesn't take him out, but he inserts himself in. Number two, God's people are not above object lessons. The reason that we come and we study 
scriptures like this and about flower and everything else is to be constantly forever reminded that God loves us, that God cares for us, that even in the midst of trouble, that he is there and available to us. And then third, we cannot go beyond God's grace. With all your failures and your heartache inside of your heart, I pray in the name of Jesus that you will know how good he is even in all your efforts, sit back and say, God, I can't do it. I can't, even, I, I can't live up to the expectations. I can't do it. I can't do it. And God sits there and says, I know, but I can. And trust in him. Let's pray together. Lord, we do love you. God, we do honor you and praise you. And we thank you for, for death in the pot sermons truth where you reveal who you are in the midst of it. And in revealing who you are, we understand better ourselves and understand how to trust you. So now, Lord Jesus, in the name, uh, in your name, I pray that we will respond. God, may there be some who come and hear the gospel and realize, God, that they cannot cure themselves no matter how much they try to help. They cannot uh, be right before you. Only you can God, may, them play, may they place their faith in you this morning. In the name of Jesus, amen.